Welcome to the New Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. In this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Mike Green, chief strategist at Simplify Asset Management. Listen in for the next 30 minutes to hear a wide-ranging discussion of the changing structure of equity markets, geopolitics, cryptocurrency, and the very risky world we currently find ourselves in. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do via Patreon. The link to do so is on the right-hand column of our website. Well, Mike, thank you very much for joining the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Sure. So my name is Mike Green. I am the Chief Strategist and Portfolio Manager for an ETF firm called Simplify Asset Management. Uh, we launched in September of 2020. We manage a diverse array of ETFs that offer traditional exposures, things like the S&P 500 or U.S. equities, um, with downside protection and various other forms of option overlays that are designed to take advantage of insights that, uh, that we've generated over the years in terms of how to hedge portfolios, how to make them better, et cetera. So it's not straight market beta? It's not straight market beta. Um, so part of the work that we'll probably discuss and that I'm well known for are the insights that I've offered on the impact of passive investing and systematic strategies on market structure. And one of the things that comes out of that is if those theories are correct, and they certainly seem to be borne out in the empirical data, um, that there are opportunities to use option overlays that offer the opportunities for better performance in the market overall. Okay, great. So let, let's talk about that to start with. So how has the rise of index-based investing, the huge flow of assets into ETFs and index funds over the last 30 or 40 years, how has that changed the way the share markets operate? Well, the easiest way to think about it is, is first of all, to remember that when we talk about passive investing or we talk about index investing, the assumptions behind that are predicated on the idea of the efficient market hypothesis, the idea that you are ultimately able to take advantage of the best insights of all the professionals and all the other investors who arrive at a price for a security that reflects all available information. The idea of a passive investor is very straightforward, right? It's somebody who doesn't actively make decisions. They just passively follow along with everybody else's decisions. The problem with that is actually embedded in the underlying assumptions of what that means. And if you go back and you read the formative literature on the idea of passive investing, in particular, the work of Bill Sharp, was a paper in 1991 called The Arithmetic of Active Management, it highlights the definition of passive as somebody who never transacts. And the problem is, is that means there's no mechanism for, the to get, for them to get into the market or to get out of the market. And the minute you recognize that, then you understand that they are not actually passive investors. They're simply active investors with the world's simplest algorithms. Did you give me cash? If so, then buy. Did you ask for cash? If so, then sell. And so with that insight, you're able to then build models to estimate the impact of introducing that type of investor into the market. And what happens is they become the dominant source of flows. And the quick answer is, is that it becomes momentum reinforcing, it becomes valuation increasing, um, it reduces liquidity during periods of market stress, and so leads to much greater negative skew outcomes, similar to what we're seeing right now, or what we saw in March 2020, or what we saw in the events of February 2018. So basically, the, the markets are increasingly momentum driven, they go up in kind of straight lines, as we've been seeing for the last 18 months to two years, but then when they turn, the liquidity disappears and the corrections are much bigger than they otherwise would be as a result yeah, of it's, it. It's, it's, that, that's 
the easiest way of describing it. It's obviously much more complicated than that. But the, the underlying feature that occurs is you have now a dominant investor who every time you give them cash steps into the market and buys in proportion to the existing market cap, right? So stocks that have gone up a lot have high market caps, therefore yep. more of them gets bought. And there are a lot of simplifying assumptions in terms of how the market works that are embedded in those approaches. It's fine. And in some ways, the introduction of these types of strategies can actually reduce market volatility when they're small, right? It becomes part of a heterogeneous universe meaning a diverse universe of investors who are able and willing to facilitate trading activity. But when they become the dominant player, then their rules become the dominant features in the market. And when you transact in a manner that they are no longer part of, what you discover is, is that the market is increasingly illiquid. Okay. So presumably there must be a tipping point at which the, you know, if, if the proportion of investors in a, in a given market, let's say the US equity market becomes, they're following a market cap-based index. Is there a tipping point at which you know, that, that, that collective impact of investors creates enough inefficiencies for, for it to stop working? And, what, you know, and if so, what is that uh, tipping point? Well, so, so the problem is, is that that tipping point, like any form of chaotic system, right, or complex system, is uncertain. There's going to be a stochastic component to it, right? A probabilistic component to it. The perverse characteristic is if I think about a player, just imagine a player in a marketplace that says, no matter what um, the price is, I will pay that price if somebody, if I have money to spend, right? If that player receives all the money, then prices go higher and higher and higher. And the problem becomes, because we think of prices in markets like stock markets or bond markets as indicative of underlying fundamentals, it basically becomes a things look better and better and better and better. And then all of a sudden, when they need to sell because they've run out of money or somebody needs to redeem from one of those funds, right? Or in, in aggregate, they experience net redemptions there's nobody to buy from them at those much higher prices. Yeah. Right. And that, that dynamic, you know, what's referred to as the, the Taleb's Turkey, right? The Thanksgiving Turkey analogy where life gets better and better and better. You're fatter and you're happier. Life couldn't be better. And then all of a sudden it comes to an end is very characteristic of the structure of the market today. So, you know, what are the implications for, you know, for the, for the markets? Is it, does that mean we, you know, things are vulnerable to a, a sudden shift to a much lower valuation could be see a complete disappearance of liquidity if things go wrong. Well, the, the great irony is, is if you have an investor that treats cash not as having optionality, right? So as a discretionary manager, cash in my portfolio gives me the option to meet a redemption without having to sell something. It allows me to buy something new without having to sell something, et cetera, right? The optionality of that cash is very valuable, but the structure of a passive or an index investor forces the cash out of the system and forces it to be invested immediately. When that happens, you have to expect that valuations are going to rise, right? It'd be the equivalent of if I held a gun to your head and said, how much is that painting worth um, and how much are you willing to pay for it, right? You know, you would pay more for the painting under duress if the rules are set up that you're required to do so you know, or you'd, you'd violate some sort of dynamic um, than otherwise, right? And so that's what we're seeing is this upward drift in valuations. On the flip side of that, 
if the market becomes narrow enough in its concentration, many people are familiar with the dynamics of predator prey type systems, right? The balance between rabbits and wolves, for example, yeah. right? Or rabbits and coyotes. Effectively, what we're describing is a system in which the growth of coyotes has been subsidized, right? You know, the government is out there saying, you know, oh, the poor coyotes, let's make sure that we feed them. Let's make sure that they're taken care of. The population of coyotes grows beyond the rabbit population. And then if you were to withdraw the stimulus, i.e. flows turn negative in any way, shape or form, the rabbit population could collapse and then the coyote population would collapse, right? Right. That's very similar to what we've constructed. We've taken what was a market of heterogeneous participants in which some people were young, some people were old, some people were value investors, some people were growth investors, some people were technology investors, some people were distressed debt investors, and we've increasingly turned them into one type of investor, an index investor. Yeah. So that lack of diversity is, a, is, is dangerous. It's a very dangerous system and perversely because of the characteristics of the system we've created, it sends us the message that things are getting better and better and better, right? Because we have to interpret high valuations as indicative of future high profits, Yep. right? So we see the system as robust and healthy, even as it's becoming sclerotic and fragile underneath the surface. Can we draw an analogy between that, uh, you know, what I would describe um, as a kind of rise in potential instability with what's going on uh, outside the financial markets, we, we've seen the you know we're on the ninth day of the Russia-Ukraine war. We've that's followed two years of co- huge disruption caused by the coronavirus pandemic. People are you know in the, in the the average citizen feels that the world is becoming more unstable and more dangerous. Is 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 there a, a link between what you're describing in the financial markets and what's going on more broadly in the world? I, I do think that there's a link, although I think that. Um... Many of the systems that I'm talking about within markets, where the regulatory framework has stepped in with the idea that we're going to optimize for a particular outcome, right? So much of the research, and this was actually the math, this is the, the, the intent behind Bill Sharp's paper, The Arithmetic of Active Management. Much of the focus has been on reducing the fees and lowering the costs the extraction effectively associated with investing in financial markets, right? That's the primary impetus and rationale behind index funds. It's not that they outperform in a single period basis, but because they offer lower fees, they outperform on a continuous basis, right? So period after period, it ultimately is supposed to work out that way. Um, When you have that type of theory and that type of approach, the natural inclination for politicians is to push more and more of that type of behavior, right? We see that in other areas of the economy as well. We should, college is a good thing, right? Therefore, we should subsidize people going to college. We should encourage the availability of debt so that people can borrow, even though they have no history of credit rating, so that they can attend college, right? Um, That has unintended consequences. The cost of college goes up. The proportion of the population that has college degrees goes up. The demand for college graduates goes down relative to the population. And that's really what I would argue that we're seeing, right? We're seeing this continual intervention with the objective of creating good outcomes because we have a perceived good in and of itself, right? College education, unalloyed good, right? Everybody should be able to have a college education. But unintentionally, we're creating competition type dynamics in which the population of rabbits, i.e. those who do not have college degrees, is falling relative to the population of coyotes again, 
And the system is set up in the same dynamic where people feel betrayed. What they were told is not correct. Looking at the history, right? The idea that the markets return X percent every year, right? That just becomes increasingly untrue. And it translates to inevitably disappointed expectations, frustrations, and social pressures. Yeah, I, I just uh, I, I listened with great interest to a recording you published a couple of days ago with uh, Victor Schwetz, uh, who you interviewed um, on. You know, you had a ch- you talked to him about a very broad range of kind of geopolitical historical topics. Uh, Victor's written a book about the what he sees as the the impact of a combination of the information age and, and the increasing financialization of human activity, and he, he thinks it's going to lead to a period where is states, uh, state-driven uh, or state-managed economies have a much bigger role than in the past. Um, do, do you agree with his view and, and you know, viewpoints? And if so, you know, how do you think things are going to evolve? Well, un- unfortunately, I agree that that is the direction that we're heading. I think where Victor and I may part um, is in the interpretation of whether that is desirable and will ultimately lead to good outcomes and therefore, we should be happy to ride the roller coaster as we proceed down that path, or whether the unintended consequences of these policies, exactly as I was describing, will ultimately put us into a position where there is a blowback against that. I, I tend to lead toward lean towards the second dynamic, right? And you know, the easiest way to think about um, these types of components is, is that they are systems, and the systems ultimately reach limits and then have feedback components to them, right? So if you grow a state and the state is receiving instructions from a diverse element of individuals, right? So a democracy with, you know, limitations and barriers on policy and lots of comment and and nimbyism. And, you know, that's great. We all want to move to nuclear power. We all want to move to solar power, but not in my backyard sort of stuff, right? And people can influence those policies. You create a tremendous amount of inefficiency in the public sector. And I would argue that's broadly what we all see today. Um, the unfortunate conclusion to that is, is that that system also shows indications that it gets healthier and health, you know, looks healthier and healthier and healthier, even as it becomes more sclerotic and fragile. And the solution, and I say solution in quotes because it's, it's an outcome rather than a desired outcome, mm-hmm. is almost inevitably the rise of authoritarian systems. Authoritarian systems is just another way of saying you raise the productivity of the public sector by stop asking what other people want and you just do what one individual wants. Yeah. Right. I, Unfortunately, I think that's the direction we're headed towards. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the quotes that came out of that podcast uh, was from, from Mao that political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. And uh, that's, you know, seems to be what's happening at the moment in, in Eastern Europe. I mean, it's clearly a, a power grab uh, and, a, and a power struggle between between two sides, um, you know, and it feels as if we're going to see more rather than less of this in the in the coming years. It, it, it does, although I think that it's it's quite interesting because the dynamic of political power comes at the, you know at the barrel of a gun. Um, I think that Putin is very much showing that that is true, and it seems highly implausible that we're going to stop him in his objective of. Um, taking over and installing a puppet regime in Ukraine. Um, But it's also been a remarkable demonstration of the damage that can be done to an economy in a globally connected system, right? So the behavior, while certainly it's admirable to try to stop 
the Russian invasion of Ukraine and support individual democratically elected um, societies, there is also an element of, of awareness of the blowback dynamics, right? So the aggregate damage to Ukraine could very well end up being much worse because of the behavior of the West in this process. The aggregate damage to the global population, in particular, many vulnerable regions in places like Africa, South America, et cetera, where food insecurity is an increasing issue, um, we're creating conditions under which people are going to be, and many societies are going to be extraordinarily stressed by the shortages of fertilizer, the shortages of food, the shortages of fuel that are beginning to emerge. In the United States and Western Europe, Western Europe a little bit less so, um, we deal with higher prices, but very rarely do we deal with absolute scarcity, right? It, it yeah. can be more expensive for me to fill the tank in my car. And there could be a debate as to whether I take the Sunday drive, but I rarely am dealing with the consequences of there being no gas, right? That's why events like Hurricane Sandy in New York City or the colonial pipeline disruption in North Carolina become so extraordinary in their dynamics. And this obviously this happens elsewhere around the world. But if you look around the world at places like Madagascar, Malawi, Kenya, et cetera, you're actually beginning to see the signs of true scarcity, right? Just true, like we can't get it. And if farmers can't get diesel, they can't get crops to town. And if crops can't get to town, then people can't live in towns. And if people can't live in towns, then they can't engage in the higher productivity networking features that that characterize urban environments, right? So you're talking about creating conditions under which there is an extraordinary blowback to the, sh to the behaviors that we're engaged in. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a very, very sobering outlook. I noticed that the, the wheat price uh, has gone above the levels of 2011, which was, I think the principal trigger for the Arab spring uprisings across the Middle East and North Africa, uh, which led to, you know, many, many lives lost and un many unintended consequences, which are still being, worked out. So it really does feel like we're heading for a period of increased geopolitical instability, uh, obviously not just in that region it's, of Eastern it, Europe. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunately a global reshuffling that is underway. And um, there's tremendous incentive in various places around the world to change alliances based on short-term, you know, addressing very short-term needs. If China steps in to finance something, then it becomes easier to pull a country out of the Western sphere. And this is exactly what we saw with the, the beginning of the Cold War. Effectively, the U.S. and the Soviet Union competed in a way for client states that left everybody worse off. Right? No, yeah. Nobody wins in these, in, in these unstable systems. Human society depends upon relative stability to flourish. We're creating conditions of extraordinary instability, and those who are most marginally um, past the point of subsistence, uh, or subsistence, I'm sorry, um, are those most likely to be damaged, right? Yeah. We're super privileged to be sitting here speaking on supercomputers from the 1970s sure. and interacting over communication networks while I'm drinking warm coffee and you know, you're later in the day, so you've probably got a cup of tea there somewhere. Yeah. But yeah. Like, this, is, this is not fun. Shouldn't yeah. be fun for anyone. Yeah. What, what do you think about the argument that this is a, you know, the end of the dollar regime? Some people are saying that this is the, you know, the, the, the moment at which, you know, China could step forward, its new digital currency could be the basis of a, 
of a, of a, of a competitor to, given all the arguments we've we've seen over the, in the last week about denying Russian entities access to SWIFT, the the, the global communication system that underlies uh, cross border payments. You know, is this is this a very very significant moment in terms of currency politics? I, I do think it is, but I think it also um, betrays a broad misunderstanding of the role of the dollar, right? So most people think about the dollar as having been the dominant currency system for give or take 80 years, right, following World War II. And we often highlight the agreement around Bretton Woods. What, what people tend to forget about Bretton Woods is that the Soviets walked away from Bretton Woods, did not participate in the dollar standard, adopted a ruble standard for client states around the world. And while that ruble standard ultimately failed, you know, roughly half the population of the globe never saw a dollar in that period from give or take 1945 until, you know, basically 1990. Yeah. Right. Um, We're just returning to that framework in which it is unclear whether China and Russia united will be able to establish that type of iron curtain type dynamic where the world fractures into a dollar and one block in part because the, the, dynamics of a block ultimately require a central agent that is a consumer rather than a producer, right? So if I am going to um, drive dollar scarcity around the world, ultimately I need to give you ways to provide, to obtain dollars by selling me stuff. Yeah. That's where the ruble block fails, right? There's, this is China and Russia. China being the exporter of a lot of manufactured goods, and correct. Russia being raw and materials export. They by themselves are not enough. They need a, they need a correct. consumer part of it. Yeah, they need a consumer as part of it. Now, it, yeah. you know, theoretically, could it be India? It's just, I mean, but but again, it's just like really, really hard to imagine that that sort of system emerges without the limitless apparent growth in consumption that came out of a region, you know, out of a region like the United States following World War II, where we had yeah. both super positive population growth and an undertapped credit market that allowed the consumption in the US to basically draw in everything else from around the world, right? And we financed consumption out of Europe and other areas as we rebuilt in, under the Marshall Plan following World War II, right? So you always need that consumer to sit at the center of that system, right? The, the grain has to flow into Rome, not out of Rome. Yeah. Yeah. Looking more broadly at the global markets, are there any things, any any areas, asset classes that strike you as particularly, you know, the, where, the, where you think the valuations are wrong? Is it, you know, is, 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 is there some are there some areas where you see a big opportunity uh, at the moment? Is it whether it's in commodities or fixed income, equities, cryptocurrencies? Anything that strikes you as completely out of sync with your worldview? Well, so so this is unfortunately part of the dynamic of the growth of systematic and passive investing, right? Is is that the underlying valuations themselves increasingly no longer matter, right? Because nowhere in the allocation matrix to the S and P five hundred do I consider something to be cheap as making it particularly attractive, right? So if I'm if I'm Vanguard and I receive money that is now flowing into the Vanguard S and P five hundred ETF VOO, and that money is coming in, it is going to be invested in proportion to the market cap. Well, how does something get high market cap? It goes up in price, not down in price, right? So perversely, you end up in a system in which valuations get increasingly unhinged and skewed because higher valuations lead to more capital allocation, not less, which is the way the system has historically worked. Um, That just leads to everything getting out of whack. 
right? Um, are there particular areas of the market that I think are kind of interesting at this point? Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to lean favorably towards, you know, areas of high yield. I'm starting to lean favorably towards um, areas of fixed income, for example, U.S. Treasuries. And I know everyone thinks that that's absolutely crazy um, because who in the heck would want to buy a U.S. 10-year at 1.7%? But the very simple answer is, is that's a guaranteed return of U.S. dollars of finite quantity, fixed quantity over a set period of time, right? That is a unique financial asset that has value in a regime in which I don't think the dollar dominance is going to go away. I do think there's a very real risk that it fractures, right? That China is, you know, tries to lead a breakaway um, because I don't see that working it actually perversely reinforces U.S. dominance, right? I mean, mm. Europe is seeing very clearly the consequences of the schadenfreude of, you know, oh, isn't it wonderful that, you know, China is emerging as a legitimate threat to the United States? Well, what you're seeing is that suddenly that world is a much more dangerous place where Pax Americana is not nearly as supported and Germany is going to have to spend a ton more money. France yeah. is going to have to spend a ton more money. You can't take advantage of cheap trading relationships like cheap imported gas from Russia. You need to invest in your own domestic sources and you need to buy it from the United States, even if it's priced at a premium. Like, yeah, that's a scary, you know, for Europe, this should be a very sobering message. I mean, it's been very uh, noticeable how you know, the all the European countries have just, you know, complete, been completely unanimous in on the, you know, these imposition of new sanctions on Russia and Russian entities. They're, you know, they've been even more enthusiastic about it than than Biden. Now they're really uh, kind of there's there's very little uh, difference of opinion as far as I can see. Yeah, I, I so I, I want to be very clear. I, I I'm 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 not a I'm not attempting to justify or argue that that we should be more sympathetic to Putin as an individual or Russia in its actions. But I do think there's a very dangerous precedent you referred to this earlier where we seem to have stopped the ability to to um, react slowly, right? We're so hair trigger that Absolutely. it becomes this piling on type dynamic. And yep. part of the dynamic of diplomacy is while you may hate, you know, there's a great line from uh, Harry Truman regarding Franco, right? And coming to an agreement with Franco, despite the fact that everybody hated him following the Spanish Civil War, he was a brutal dictator and nobody was in favor of him. But the U.S. ultimately needed access to airfields in Spain in order to conduct policy in, you know, the 1940s. And Harry Truman's, you know, observa observation was, you know, well, I don't, this doesn't mean I have to like the son of a bitch, right? Um in the case of Putin, we're in this very dangerous place where we have reacted so aggressively and so, and moved so far so fast yeah. that he is personally humiliated under anything other than absolute victory in the Ukraine at this point. Yeah. And that makes it impossible for him to back down, right? And that's a very dangerous negotiating position to have put yourself into. I, I can't help but highlight the dynamic of, you know, like a schoolyard bully is a very bad thing, but the schoolyard bully rarely kills people for the very simple reason that they have a sense of what their strength and their limits actually are. Where it gets yeah. really scary and dangerous is when people who have no history of conflict, have no history of using violence, suddenly start piling on, right? That's where somebody gets trampled in a crowd, right? Where 
you know, kids get killed accidentally sort of stuff. And it feels like there's been this giant um, dog pile, right? That is yeah. shocking in its urgency and its severity. Um, and, you know, we're trying to create narratives where, you know, Ukraine is unquestionably good and Russia is unquestionably bad. And just the world is not that black and white. Yeah, I've, I've uh, studied Russian and I've lived in that part of the world. And it's, uh, you know, the situation is much, much more complex than it's being portrayed in uh, in, the, in the media. And it scares me too, I have to say. It's, uh, it's uh, the, the way that kind of shift in public opinion has unfolded and flags on one side, you know, everywhere in the house. Well. I mean, it's, I really, yeah, it, it makes you, makes me, it really uh, worries me. It, it's just it, it's it's a further extension of the same behavior that we saw with coronavirus, right? Where there cannot be a nuanced discussion around our mass is masking appropriate, our you know vaccine mandates appropriate, our you know suspensions of civil liber- civil liberties in the presence of a novel virus appropriate, right? Like we just we stopped discussion, we stopped the ability to behave as adults and to sit down and say, okay, what are the trade offs associated with this? And it just feels like we've just veered from that into the next great thing yeah yeah um i mean I, briefly before we finish i'd love to ask you your thoughts about i've followed your comments on twitter on on bitcoin where i think it's fair to say you're on the skeptical side of the argument but but i i've also seen you made some interesting comments about the importance of central bank digital currency and also decentralized finance could you could you just kind of outline what what you're thinking is there sure so so th- there are two separate components so um to be very clear, I am extremely skeptical of Bitcoin, and in particular, the um, marketing message and the attempts to sell it to retail investors as a replacement currency for the US dollar and a replacement for the world, right? It is not a currency. It is a speculative asset. Um, whether it goes up or down is actually somewhat irrelevant to me. What I am concerned about is the way in which it is being marketed and the encouragement and incitement for people to behave very irresponsibly. Yeah, Part of that goes back to the earlier comments I was making about the challenges that we have in society where people are looking for lottery ticket-like vehicles to escape what they see as a um, futile existence, right? I'm never going to achieve the life that the influencers that I see on Instagram have unless I have something that goes up 100x. And I've been told that this is the 100x multiplier that could take me out. The rest of you are not going to make it. Have fun staying poor. Right? Yeah. That's the language and the behavior behind Bitcoin. I think it is criminal. I think it is inappropriate. And I think it's leading to and exacerbating and taking advantage of the social tensions that we were referring to before. And when it doesn't work, which the system is not properly constructed to function as that currency or that store of value. And anyone who is able to run a simulation of the system understands this. It's part of the reason why you see many serious academic researchers and computer scientists who are capable of running those types of analyses are like, this system is not a good system, right? Unfortunately, that, you know, those two in terms of their ability to raise money and, and, and their profile um, are rarely linked. So I just, I want to emphasize that my criticism is focused on Bitcoin and the lack of regulation, the lack of transparency and standards in a system that ultimately is incredibly important. It's very similar to what we saw with the dot-com cycle. 
where there are positive externalities associated with the building of a digital network, the building of a system that allows peer-to-peer transactions, the building of a system that facilitates the, the um, uh, decentralization of finance. And that's a really critical component to emphasize is that what we have seen in the West, particularly in the United States, is an extraordinary concentration of financing. Richard Werner, who's an academic in, in Germany, has written very eloquently about the need to return to, uh, to vehicles like community banking, et cetera. In the United States, the top five depository institutions in 1982 represented about 13% of deposits. Today, they represent in excess of 45% of deposits, right? We've extraordinarily consolidated the system. That makes the system more fragile, and it makes the system more biased. If you're JP Morgan, for example, you're much more biased to lend to somebody who can borrow a billion dollars than to somebody who needs to borrow a thousand dollars, right? That has the impact of reducing the availability of credit, which is a remarkably powerful and important tool for young people who want to borrow in small sums, Mm -hmm. right? Who want to make investments. Um, And it leads to, again, this fracturing of society, particularly along the dimensions of wealth and age that are contributing to the tensions that you referred to earlier. So you see a very positive future for decentralized finance, but not based around something like Bitcoin. It'll be based around what? Central bank, uh, digital currencies? or unfortunately, there's a, Yeah, unfortunately, there's a reason why fiat currency exists and why governments sit at the center of currency systems, right? Because they have a monopoly on enforcement. They have a monopoly on court systems. They have a monopoly on dispute resolution yeah. in any form other than vigilantism, right? Um, people talk about the transparency of things like smart contracts and DeFi. It, you know, that's it's very similar to go back to take yourself back to the 17th century, where the vast majority of our population was not literate, and think about the you know narratives that existed in terms of a lender taking advantage of a local farmer who can only sign an X on the line. Is that your mark, right? Well, the contract is very clear, right? It's written out. This, these are the terms, but the farmer can't read it. Hmm. Right. The vast majority of our population has no mechanism to disaggregate the components of a smart contract written in solidity. Right. Well, as much as we'd like to believe that's the case, it's just not right. I actually grew up programming computers. I look at half these contracts and I'm like, man, there is no auditing tools in place. There is no mechanism for me to easily run a simulation that yep. says this is how this contract is going to perform under these various conditions. And I just want to highlight that even financial professionals, right? We see this from French banks on a continuous basis. We saw it with Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, et cetera, right? They enter into contracts in which they haven't evaluated all the possible outcomes. And that tends to lead to financial collapse. Now put that in the hands of your average plumber who's supposed to figure out the details of the contract that have been put in front of them without any form of regulation or a system that demands clear and and simple language. This is not going to work under the current structure, that there's a reason why we have transparency requirements that are then subject to legal requirements. Right. But it's, the, but the, it's, it's the, that obviously that all needs to be audited and, and quality checked. But you're saying it's the peer-to-peer um, infrastructure that's being created now that's important, that's valid, that will be valuable. Absolutely. I think the yeah. infrastructure is, is incredibly important in the same way that the diffusion of a printing press is incredibly important in terms of lowering the cost of doing these systems, you don't necessarily have to have a lawyer for low consequence components. You need things like dispute resolution in small claims courts that, that you know, 
change the statement that code is law, right? Because code is not law. Hmm. Code just means something happened in a computer program, right? We need to have the social mechanisms arise alongside that. We're making great progress in the actual technology systems. We're nowhere near where we need to be to have that truly diffuse out to the broad population. Right. So the next five or 10 years, we really have to work hard on the governance of these systems. 100%. That, yeah. that is the message that I'm trying to make clear. And you know, I, I love the experimentation. I love the expert investors. I love the, the, the people stepping in and playing around with the system because we do need to figure this out. It's experimentation. But we've entered into this very disturbing pattern. And you can link it to things like, I mean, not that I want to pick on Elon Musk or Tesla because I really don't care. But self-driving cars are very clearly being beta tested, right, on, on, on the general public, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like that shouldn't be happening. Yeah. As much as as, as much as that is as that experimentation is wonderful in a lot of ways, that's not the way we should actually do it. Yeah. Mike, we run out of time, but thank you very much for a fascinating chat. It's been uh, great to uh, great to talk to you and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Thank you very much. I really appreciate have a, it. Have, okay. Have a good rest of the day. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so via Patreon. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.